Welcome to another episode of Boss Mama's Mindset. I'm your host, Laura Katanen, CEO and founder of Zello Studio, business and mindset coaching for boss mamas in order to ignite your passions, expand your mind, and elevate your business and life. The goal of this podcast is to get real on topics that make us a little uncomfortable so we can get smarter and more aligned with what is in our minds and souls to have thriving businesses. We hope you enjoy today's episode and please don't forget, leave us a rating and a comment so that we can know exactly what you loved and resonated with the most. Today, my guest is Sohaila Zadran, co-founder of Fempatch, a woman's health and reproductive longevity platform. They believe all women should have access to eco-friendly products like tampons at an affordable price. And guess what? We're talking all about numbers today, and I'm really excited about that. And before we get into it, and I introduce her, I want you to know that I drew a stone like I always do, and I drew it blindly. And today's stone I drew is citrine. And citrine is actually the wealth stone. And it's a stone that can bring prosperity and help improve difficult financial situations. So for anybody listening and you are scared of numbers, relax, because the stone is here to guide us. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the citrine stone is one of my favorite stones. I actually carry the citrine stones with me in my purse and in my wallet. Oh my gosh, that's so funny because it yeah. literally just fell into my hand. And I was like, this is the one. <laughs> I love that. So thank you for joining us and being here and tell us a little bit about how Fempatch came about and a little bit more about your story. Absolutely. So we founded Fempatch February 2020. So it's definitely one interesting time to be building a company right before sort of the major onset of the quarantine and COVID in California. The premise of the company was really to focus on wellness not in terms of health, clinical, medical-oriented women's wellness, but in terms of alternative wellness approaches to managing one's health. We think there's a lot of amazing companies out there. We think there's a lot of amazing founders that are doing some really kind of disruptive things in women's digital health as well as women's telehealth. But we're starting to see both as scientists and as entrepreneurs that you know, Western medicine is incredibly limited, and we think that an amalgamation of both Eastern traditions, mysticism, as well as Western medicine can really create a more whole system, whole body approach to wellness. Mm. In science, we're seeing a lot of research being done on topics that five or 10 or 15 years ago would have been considered a soft science. We have an entire division at Harvard that's focused on meditation and the wellness around meditation and exactly the neuroscience behind meditation. We have a handful of like amazing scientists that are going after understanding the role of fasting and diet restriction and extending longevity. And you know, there are scientists that are trying to really understand what the mechanisms of aging are and how to be able to extend aging. So as science starts to you know, dip its toes into Eastern traditions and into the concepts of wellness, neural wellness, physical wellness, metabolic wellness, we wanted to be able to do two things. One, be able to create next generation technologies for women to leverage, especially now more than ever, where women are really restricted 
in terms of, you know, going to wellness centers or wellness institutes or engaging on a, you know, human to human level with um, wellness experts and to be able to create a completely online platform for them to receive wellness guidance, as well as wellness um, education. And the second, to create a piece of artificial intelligence named Lucy that is gonna leverage her sophistication in computing power to create um, sort of a personalized wellness approach. We think every single woman's biology is very different. Every single woman's wellness um, is very different. And we wanna make sure that we are taking into consideration a woman's biometric data, personal history and goals and create wellness programs personalized for her. And to be able to do that, we wanna be able to leverage the computing power of AI platforms that we have to do that. So that's the premise of Fempatch. We're really, really young and we're hoping as we go through this journey, there's gonna be a tremendous amount of learning and engagement to see one, what's the proper way of building Lucy and two, quantifying and defining in scientific terms, this sometimes soft word of wellness. Yeah, I understand. It's always been a debate um, on what does that actually mean and how, does, how do we actually bring that to life? Um, when we first talked, I was quite, and, and then afterwards I went away and did my own research. I was blown away by some of the numbers. And I know that in our conversation, you mentioned really trying to get into detention centers or um, um, what's the word I'm, I'm blanking? Correctional centers, correctional correct facilities, yeah. And then there's also um, low-income schools and places like that. So share some of the numbers and statistics that really hit you the most emotionally. So, you know, one of the mission statements of the company is to make sure that wellness is accessible for all you yeah. know, in terms of both pricing and as well as access. A lot of the technologies that exist today have really been geared toward a higher social economic class. And a lot of wellness initiatives have been geared for a higher economic social class. And we're recognizing that if we can start moving patients from a pathology first approach to their healthcare to a wellness first approach to their healthcare, we can actually improve outcomes across all patients. And what that means is essentially is that most people, men, women of all social classes, usually don't go to a physician until they're sick or don't seek out help until something is wrong. And from a clinical standpoint, I mean, there are algorithms that clinicians use to be able to treat, you know, symptoms, but physicians, healthcare providers, you know, insurance companies, and you know, research institutes are recognizing that like, that's usually when it's kind of too late. We really wanna be able to take more proactive approaches in preventing that pathology than having to have a patient and having to treat the pathology. But you know, it's a mindset that's been engraved in us for a very, very long time. And we think that our culture is starting to move towards wellness and move towards preventative care and preventative um, approaches but there's in the market in itself, the wellness market in itself is over, you know, a trillion dollars and it's just continuously growing. The market includes meditation, vitamins, supplements, weight management programs, and um, this sort of massive explosion in the actual market potential is giving us some indication that, you know what, 
as this market is growing, more and more consumers and more and more patients are becoming aware of the beneficial impacts of something like this. But with that said, if you look down and deep into the market and the consumers that are actively in that space, they're individuals that have the spending capabilities that are high net worth, they're of higher social economic status, and we're forgetting a massive component of the demographic that are lower income. And you know, I think we read a statistic of over 20 million US women don't have access to basic feminine hygiene products. And this is tampons, pads. And you know, in the United States, we're still taxed. In California, we're still taxed on purchasing tampons and feminine hygiene products. And, and so I want to add because I read in the material that, you know, for boss mamas listening, like think about this. You have just given birth to your child where a lot of blood comes out afterwards, and you literally have no way, no, no affordability to really help this this aftermath because I was reading about this you know for for the poor the poorest or the lowest income this can be an issue and I was shocked to read this you know we're giving life to the world and yet we lack uh, just access to some of the most important things for us right like it's just Absolutely. very mind-blowing to me how did you come up with the name Lucy Lucy so one of the very first pre-hominoids that were discovered was discovered in Africa and they named her Lucy and she ended up being a female because they did some genetic testing. And we kind of viewed her, I personally viewed her as sort of the mother of humankind because she was the very first humanoid that was discovered. And so for us, it just felt like a very interesting full circle of being able to create a Lucy that's purely artificial intelligence that is educating women on basic women's health and wellness initiatives. And so Lucy was named after her. That's awesome. And I believe you're looking for people to help you with the beta testing stage, right? So anyone watching this and this, um, the mission um, of Fempatch is something that really connects with you, please reach out. Um, her info will be linked in um, this post and so will mine and either of us can um, make sure you can help out by answering questions, right? Like it doesn't take very long. Absolutely. So all you have to do is go on the website and the first 30 minutes, the first appointment is 30 minutes long. It's completely free. And what ends up happening on these appointments is that we're just going to engage in a dialogue. I will physically be, or my colleague who's also a scientist will physically be on the call with you. And we're just going to talk to you about wellness. Lucy is a piece of AI. And so Lucy has to get trained to learn and to expect certain types of questions. And one of the first things we're building is building a data set for Lucy to start learning on. And we need women to be able to allow Lucy to learn on them. And then the hope is that as Lucy is learning, she can become more and more sophisticated as every engagement goes on. Yeah, that's incredible. So I'm certainly going to sign up. I hope everybody else does too. Okay, without much delay, I know everybody's waiting for this hot topic. I get a lot of questions as a business coach. Um, often when I'm sitting down and we're going through their SWAT, um, their strengths, their weaknesses, a lot of the opportunities that come up are in respect to how they're managing their money. I think it's something that as entrepreneurs, when we get started, 
you forget, oh my gosh, this could actually be important to get organized right from the beginning, right? right? So anybody listening, don't feel bad. And if you don't understand some of the terms that we talk about, or it feels like a lot, don't worry, we all have our natural progression. But it's important to get comfortable with your numbers, ladies. You've got to get in bed with your numbers. You have to know what are you uh, spending money on, what are you bringing in, etc. So I want to know from you, have you always been comfortable with numbers? And if not, what steps did you take to really get comfortable? Absolutely. So for me, the biggest tool in building a company, even when it's in the ideation phase, where like you're just kind of drawing out what you hope the company would be on the back of a napkin, is this very simple model called a pro forma. And what the pro forma is essentially, is a pro forma breaks down how you spend money. And it also calculates, you know, how you make money and what projections you would have on a quarterly and a yearly basis. And it's just a nice, easy one Excel sheet document for you to be able to just monitor your business, your business expenses. I know that from an accounting perspective, it can get incredibly intense with balance sheets and payroll, but the pro forma is like the snapshot of like, okay, what am I spending on salary? What am I spending on marketing? What am I, and you can, the beauty is that it usually pro formas are very adaptive. So the formulas are already encoded into the Excel sheet. So if you decide to take out an employee or add an employee, it auto populates all of the cash flow and the expenses and your, um, your revenue projections. So it's nice to be able to also test and experiment on what the company can and cannot be in a very cheap way. It's free. Essentially go into an Excel sheet and be like, well, if I hire two engineers, what is that going to, you know, how is that going to affect my bottom line? What is that going to look like for my revenues in you know, three years? And just to be able to plug in the engineers into the Excel sheet and to be able to see the behaviors after that. My personal relationship with numbers have been really good. Not going I was always kind of a math geek. So I loved you know, being able to You're do the one in class that most of the ladies were like, oh, how does she do it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a, a cultural effect there. I know that there was a lot of studies that were done that for a very long time, girls, young girls would outperform boys from the ages of, I think, preschool all the way up to like third or fourth grade. And don't quote me on like the, com the complete uh, numbers there, but outperform their male colleagues in classrooms in mathematics. And some inflection point happened during the teenage years where boys started to outperform females. And a lot of anthropologists kind of accounted it to our cultural influences on the fact that boys were supposed to do well in, in mathematics and girls were supposed to focus more on sort of like, you know, family planning and um, nurturing and things of that nature. I just got really lucky that I was a tomboy and raised as a tomboy. So I just kind of like went through and did very, very well with numbers. Mon numbers can be incredibly intimidating, but they don't have to be. And starting out with a very simple pro forma. And even, I mean, I still do like, like pencil and paper calculations on like, you know, how much do I anticipate spending today? Like making a list of all expenses and just organizing in that way. I think when you go out to fundraise for a company, if you get angel investors or venture capital investors or private equity investors, having a pro forma is critical because it gives those investors a snapshot of like, you have built out a strategy. 
on how the money is going to be used. As an entrepreneur, having a performer is incredibly important because it keeps you focused on the things that matter most to your company and make and it makes sure that you are allocating your capital accordingly so if marketing is a huge part of your business you want to make sure that you're allocating the right numbers to marketing and sort of taking away number um capital from like you know leases and from salaries and things of that nature and then from a you know pure business model perspective it gives your business model and your business structure. You'll start to see very easily in your in your performa where you're losing money and how to be able to modulate your business so that you're not losing that money and cars start to be revenue generating. Post COVID, we're seeing a shift, a dynamic shift, both on the investor front, on the business front to start building companies that are sustainable, that are revenue generating much earlier. And this was not a part of our culture, a part of our sort of a business culture, you know, two or three or four years ago, you can, you know, not be revenue generating and still go through the process and get nice valuations and nice investors around the track. Like Amazon, right? I mean, Twitter is still, I don't think, profitable. <laughs> it's like 10 or 15 years in. Yep. But, you know, post-COVID, you know, fundraising is becoming challenging. Investors want a sustainable company to invest in that's a little bit more de-risked. And, you know, I came across this snapshot, this entrepreneur that was your classic brick and mortar entrepreneur that said that, look, you know, selling a thousand units to a thousand people at a thousand dollars can get you at a million dollars very, very quickly. And yeah. so like seeing the numbers in that way of like, okay, getting to a thousand people, not as hard, but then again, like, you know, you would have to get to 10,000 people if you were selling a product for $19. And just breaking down the expenses and breaking down the cogs in that way so you can just visualize your bottom line is going to be super helpful for up and coming um, entrepreneurs. Actually, so for everyone watching, um, you've actually exited two companies, right? And, and so you've been at every stage and I'm curious, what is it like, what do you, what do you, what did you learn through that process of growth of what I often get asked the question, what percentage should I be spending on what should I be spending more on marketing or more on operations? I'm curious what your take on that is. So every business is slightly different. And in our industry, we kind of subdivide them into sectors. So there's companies that fall naturally into biotech. So companies that fall naturally into medtech, companies that are pure e-commerce or consumer oriented or CPG. And so depending on where your business falls within these different sectors, there are models and there's precedent in the literature that you can go and look up to be like, well, if you're a CPG company, the anticipation is that you should be spending anywhere between 20 to 40% on marketing. If you're a you know, biotech company, you're going to be spending 50 to 70% on R&D. So it really depends on what sector you're, you're building your company in. And you can go into the literature and pull out pro formas that already exist and are free and freely available to young entrepreneurs to be like, well, these are models that other biotech companies and other CPG companies or other fintech companies or SaaS companies have been using at different stages. And so my recommendation is, you know, just first identify what sector you're playing in, what your business model is, and then to leverage precedent, you know, companies that have already done this and pull their performance and to be, to be as 
you know, as I think the word that I'm looking for is as shark-like as possible when you want to get information as you're building this out. There are a lot of founders out there that are incredibly open and willing to sharing information databases that they have. I mean, emailing a CEO that is building a company in the same sector and stage that has already gone through the trenches and have already made all of the mistakes and just reaching out in a cold email, you'll be surprised at how open they are in sharing their information and sharing their pro forma with you and sharing their pain points with you on how to, how to sort of allocate the right spending and leverage that. Also to remember that every ecosystem is slightly different. And then we're also in a very dynamic time right now where a lot of things are changing incredibly rapidly and companies are pivoting their models. Yeah. They can sort of adapt to this new ecosystem that we're having right now. We have companies that were selling, you know, that were selling like social events, for example. Now they can never hold a social event because of COVID. So immediately they have to adapt and they have to change their model. And so also, you know, an advice to entrepreneurs, like just keep your ear to the ground and just watch and to make sure that you're stealthy enough to be able to adapt or to pivot or to change, especially if you're very, very early in case that your environment requires you to do that. Change is so important. And, and we, I always advocate thinking what is going to put you out of business, what could potentially make you obsolete and always have that in your mind and be on the lookout for that. I also think that not enough women believe, boss mamas believe that they can actually scale their business. Right. I don't know what it is, if it's time, if it's the pressure or if it's the fear of pitching, what advice would you give on how to think about scaling in the most simple form? Right. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs that don't have the expertise in scaling or have never scaled a business before, the first and foremost thing is get people around the table that who have done it. So people that have scaled, have grown companies and bring them around the table, even in like a very 15 minute coffee call, for example, and get their two cents on how to be able to do it. I'm a firm believer of two things. One, network effects, and two, the collective brain power of many versus one. One of the biggest pitfalls of entrepreneurs is that they feel that they're alone. And in reality, you are not. We are in a highly connected ecosystem and we're surprisingly in a highly collaborative ecosystem. So get people around the table that have done exactly this and use their brain power and expertise so that you're not going and sort of doing this on your own or doing this in a very blind way. And then after you have the expertise and the advice of many, develop a very hypothesis-driven approach and experiment. Do very quick and dirty experiments on what will work and what will not work. And I have to say growth is hard. I mean, it's incredibly hard, but with the right people around the table, with the right advisors around the table, and with the right approach it can be seamless i love that it's great advice ladies okay so we're running out of time i'm going to ask hmm, which is my last question that i want to ask <laughs> there's so many i could talk to you forever i feel that way every time we chat um okay what i think this is a great question what specific numbers are essential to track at at the very early stages i am just starting up, what are the top things? Numbers to track in terms of your company. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, it really, again, it's so sector 
dependent, but track your bottom line, track your spending, track if you're in a consumer company, your CAC, your consumer engagement um, numbers, as well as your customer acquisition costs. These are numbers that you should just kind of monitor because these are numbers. And I think for a lot of these boss moms, the thing that's kind of top of mind right now, probably now more than ever is investors and getting investor you know, capital in are numbers that investors ask. And so really having that in your back pocket every time you engage with, the, with an investor is really critical. And so that the investor knows that you know what your business is, you know where the weaknesses in the, in the strengths of your businesses are. My advice to a lot of women is try to ensure that your, your expenses are low in the very beginning of the company, your CACs are low in the very beginning of the company. And I know that it's very, very hard. In Fempatch, for example, it is a consumer-oriented company. We purposely reduced our marketing spend to keep our CAC low because we know that one of the biggest you know, pitfalls of early stage companies is they have these massive you know, marketing spends and they deploy capital so quickly for marketing. And we leverage alternative approaches to marketing. We did cross-marketing, we did um, organic email marketing so that our CAC is really low because when we go into our price round, when we go into fundraise, we can actually go to investors and be like, our CAC is between three to $4 versus $75, which is a red flag for a lot of investors. And to make sure that you are pushing revenue in an organic way, in a very creative way, without you know spending too much on marketing um, and not going into the classic pitfall of you know massive marketing spends in that way and then the other thing that you know in terms of numbers is really understanding for every dollar that you're putting into the company is it adding value valuations especially as you start to fundraise is going to be incredibly important and sometimes there isn't a direct correlation between dollar in and revenue out and dollar out. And so if you are deploying capital and building out teams, there is a value for the team itself. There's a value for the R&D, for the technology. And so to make sure that the money that's going into the company can be pointed towards value created in the company, I think is gonna be very critical. We're seeing a lot of interesting things happen around valuations of companies right now. The traditional approach you know, last year, uh, let's let's say like less than seven seven months ago, is that companies were being valued at these astronomical numbers, and we're getting to a point where we had this valuation bubble burst and getting more reasonable valuations now. So just be incredibly conscious of like how you are spending your capital and ensuring the money that's being spent is adding value in one way or the other within the company, so that you can point to investors to be like, we've added value by adding these engineers. We've added value by you know, spending money on this R&D effort and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. So um, key takeaways, and then I'm gonna get into the last bit, which is really fun. I'm gonna ask you two uh, random questions and you have to answer them on the speed. So, but key takeaways for me is, you know, really just network. And at every stage of your um, entrepreneurship, there is so much value in asking questions. Um, I know my husband always says, you know, when you um, ask questions or ask for um, advice, you usually receive money. When you ask for money, you usually, usually receive advice. So I think that it's really important to network and really grow relationships and seek out people that have been there and done that. And just make sure you're also doing your data 
so that you're not becoming obsolete, that you're able to pivot, and that you're able to continue to grow when times shift because they're always shifting. We're always changing in this world. Absolutely. Did I get it? Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I used to be in the VC world, and so I can give a couple of pointers on what to expect when you're engaging with investors. The first thing is, is that if an investor passes on you, don't be too disheartened by it. Some investors just have a thesis and your company, even though it's a stellar company, doesn't fit in that thesis. And so an investor is forced to pass. For example, there are investors that only do biotech investments. So even if you have an amazing fintech company with amazing numbers, because this thesis requires him to invest in biotech, he cannot touch your company. And so don't get too disheartened when an investor passes on your company because there's a lot more at play than just the numbers around your company and you're as an entrepreneur. The second thing is investors really love founders. And when you're, even if you're early stage or later stage, investors first and foremost want to invest in great teams because they believe that teams are a critical component of the success of a company. And there are many times where we've invested in companies that had an amazing technology, an amazing business model, amazing numbers, but the founders didn't have the capabilities to execute you know, the necessary things to make that company successful. And we even had founders that were at each other's throat that resulted in the complete you know, imploding of a company. We even sent them to founders therapy. And so the I didn't team, know there was such a thing. Yeah, there's founders therapies to hope that they can try to like resolve the resolve the conflict within their relationship as co-founders. So founding team and founding dynamic team dynamics is really important to them and to make sure that you look at your team and the people around you and you like who you work with. And then each individual around you is adding value in some capacity. And then to be honest with investors in terms of like, these are our strengths and these are our weaknesses. Mm. Investors respect founders if founders are completely aware of what their weaknesses are because they, they know that the founder is looking at all components of the company. So for example, if you're a founder that doesn't have a lot of experience with marketing and are forthright with, a with an investor and be like, look, these are our models. We're doing great in terms of X, Y, and Z, but we need to bring on a marketing person because that is not my skill set and that is a weakness for the company. But if you invest, we can do that higher. They appreciate that. And then, you know, lastly, it's a massive network effect. Getting those warm introductions, I know it's really hard to be able to do that, but investors speak to investors. When you do approach an investor and you pitch an investor, you are totally capable of asking them to be like, if there are any other investors in your network or angels in your network that come to mind that this might be a fit for, would you make that introduction? And they usually do because investors share deals all of the time. And in the portfolio of most investors, some of them are publicly available information. Crunchbase has them, PitchBook has them. There are companies that already exist that you can reach out to founders in that portfolio and make introductions to the investors and also to leverage investors to get access to consumers because let's just say you need access to a company or you know a healthcare company or a biotech company or if you need access to like an e-commerce platform if that investor in, invested in that company you can literally be like well you can you make that introduction to that founder because we would love to do a partnership with them and investors are usually happy to do that as well 
So leverage, you know, the network effect and the network power to be able to, you know, hit these investors from multiple fronts. That's such great advice. I mean, at the end of the day, it always boils down to people and relationships and, and I think integrity and being authentic and being true to what you said, skills and where you may need more support. So fantastic. Thank you so much. And, you know, ladies, if you're watching this and you haven't even thought about being at that level of talking to investors or any of that, don't worry. This was sprinkling little seeds. It's about being exposed and understanding that, hey, if she can do it, and we can all do it and we can all uh, support one another to um to tackle this thing that might seem overwhelming but take the baby steps to really becoming uh, a really uh, yeah thriving ceo of your business getting to the next step so before we close i wanted to ask you what is the scariest thing that you have overcome in your life the scariest thing that I've overcome in my life in terms of sort of like the business challenge, just the biggest challenge, biggest challenge. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I've had to overcome in my life is trying to break down the stereotypes that are often affiliated with women. And I think both as a woman in science, cause I am a scientist, a woman in business, a woman in, 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 in venture, there are a lot of stereotypes affiliated with, you know, being of a certain gender and then being in these roles and trying to break those down and to pound the table and to demand the same expectations and the same, you know, privileges as my other counterparts, I think has been a real challenge. Um, it's unfortunate that this is still part of our ecosystem. I think it's even propagated. It's you know, the, the events of the last couple of weeks have propagated mm. the need for changes in this in the industry. That's not only for people of different genders, but people of different races and ethnicities as well. And there's a huge problem in all of these industries in the ignorance of ignorance. I don't believe that all people are purposely having these biases. I just think that these biases are things that just occurred organically and are unknowing. But the ignorance of that kind of ignorance, like the unawareness of those biases have caused, you know, a lot of these challenges for people like me, who is a person of color, who is, you know, first generation U.S. citizen, who is a daughter of refugees and who identifies as female, to try to overcome and to be able to, to sit at the table and to be viewed at the, at the same level of equality as my counterparts um, are. I mean, it's like chewing glass. And sometimes when you eventually make the table, you're just so physically exhausted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it sometimes like the battle can be incredibly, um, draining as a consequence of it so that when you're actually at the table you're just so tired and doing the work <laughs> once you're there becomes challenging as well yeah so i guess you have you have to have a lot of mindset work like very you have to get real clear on what you value and how to how to stay in your truth and really show up uh without uh, changing too much yeah, well, there's a very famous quote that 
came about, and I believe, and I'm taking it out of context here, is that if you try to go into a space that was not traditionally meant for you, whatever space that is, just existing is the revolution in mm-hmm. that space. And for all the, the females that are out there, all of the, the mom bosses, it's hard. And I'm, I can definitely feel what you're feeling. It is supposed to feel like chewing glass. And that's what all of us are feeling. And it's okay to feel challenged, to feel defeated, to feel tired, to feel exhausted. The only thing I would say is that you are doing something incredibly remarkable in the sense that in spite of all of the challenges that you know your peers may not experience, you are still being able to do the remarkable things that you're doing. And as a consequence, you've now created a skill set and an asset class that your peers don't have. Yes, motherhood and entrepreneurship. It's a great combination. I really appreciate your time and all of your intelligence and your heart um, and what you're doing. Your mission is, uh, you and your co-founder's mission, I really, uh, I just, I stand behind. I think it's really great. So again, anybody watching, please uh, check out the links that we will provide. Make sure you reach out, um, give some beta testing to Lucy and also go and like um, Femme Patch and give them some uh, appreciation. So thank you so much. Thank you for everybody watching.